thank you very much for joining us for today's conference on delivering net zero from the Institute for Government. My name is Gemma Tetlow, I'm Chief Economist at the Institute for Government and I will be chairing uh, this session this afternoon. And I'd like to start by thanking the sponsors for today's event, the Association of British Insurers, the Association for Project Management, Imperial College London Transition to Zero Pollution Initiative and Novo Nordisk, without whom this wouldn't have been possible. I'm delighted to be joined uh, for the next hour by three excellent panellists to discuss this topic. We have Professor Sadita Helm, who is Professor of Economic Policy at the University of Oxford and has advised the UK and EU governments extensively on energy and climate issues, including until last November as chair of the Natural Capital Committee. He's also written numerous books on this subject, including most recently Net Zero, in which he lays out how to combat the climate emergency. We also have Paul Johnson, who's Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and member of the Climate Change Committee, and Rain Newton-Smith, who is Chief Economist at the Confederation of British Industry. We'll have about 25 minutes at the end of this session for questions from all of you, so please do start sending those in via the Q&A function throughout the session. And if you'd like to, please add your name and where you're sending your question from, um, because it's interesting to know where, where everyone's tuning in from today. Today's session will be on the record and my colleagues will be live tweeting it from the at IFG events uh, Twitter account using the hashtag IFG net zero. So please do follow and tweet along with that. And a sound and video recording of this event will be available on our website within 24 hours. Before I hand over to our panelists for their opening remarks, I'd like to start by introducing Ben Wilson, who is Director of Advocacy at the Association of British Insurers, who will make a few introductory remarks. Thank you, Gemma. Um, the ABI is really pleased to sponsor such an important panel discussion and uh, which couldn't be more timely as we head into COP26. Um, the ABI represents the UK's world leading insurance and long term saving sector and our members manage 1.6 trillion of assets and will therefore be crucial to the su success of any strategy to finance net zero before 2050. And I'm really pleased to say that the ABI's board has made tackling climate change one of its very top priorities this year with the task force of industry CEOs personally driving that work. We believe that our sector's investment potential can be maximised by combining things like the government's recent welcome announcement of a green bond, targeted reform of the Solvency II regime that regulates how our sector manages its capital and a consistent and clear taxonomy for green investments. However, it would be wrong to see our sector's role as only in terms of providing finance. Our members see the effects of climate change firsthand. In recent years, the London market has absorbed multi-billion pound losses from hurricanes and wildfires, wildfires, while domestic insurers paid out more than 540 million for winter storms in 2019 and early 2020. We can also help consumers make the adaptations necessary. Transitioning to electric vehicles and retrofitting buildings will require product innovation from insurers while long-term savings providers are providing new, greener ways to invest for consumers as they plan their financial futures for retirement. While the net zero targets are long-term, the decisions required to meet them are not, and insurance and long-term savings providers, connected as they are to every part of the economy, will play a pivotal role in financing and rolling out these changes. And for all those reasons, I'm really looking forward to hearing from our panel about how we can work with both the wider business community with government regulators and um, esteemed climate change experts like we have on the panel to uh, tell us how exactly we might do this. So thank you, Jim. I'll hand back to you. Thanks very much, Ben. Paul, can I come to you instead um, for, 
to start with. Um, you're on the Committee on Climate Change and the committee recently published its report on the UK's sixth carbon budget, which will take the UK quite a long way towards uh, net zero. Can you give us your thoughts on what the government needs to think about in paying for transition and distributing costs? Uh, yes, um, I think you've given me three minutes and I'll see what I can do uh, in those three minutes. I think the first uh, place to start actually is to understand what we've done so far. We've made quite a big reduction over the last decade or so in uh, in, in carbon emissions, uh, mainly through the electricity uh, sector, and that's essentially all being paid for by consumers. Uh, now, uh, there's been a significant offsetting effect there in the sense that uh, houses have become better insulated and our gadgets have become more efficient, uh, but that is very clearly how that's been paid for. Uh, that is, of course, uh, regressive, for example, relative to a progressive uh, income tax and to the extent that lower income households have a higher fraction of their spending on electricity than higher income ones. Uh, that is something we might be concerned about, though the politics of this have worked remarkably well because nobody's noticed um, uh, rather different uh, what it would have looked like had we imposed a carbon tax or a VAT um, on electricity consumption. Going forward, uh, just to give some sense of at least one kind of measure of the cost, the Climate Change Committee estimate estimates that we'll need to spend something like £50 billion pounds a year, uh, each year for the next 30 years, on investments in green technology of one kind or another. That adds up to a pretty hefty £1.5 uh, by my uh, estimates over that 30 years, and that's about uh, something like a 15% increase in uh, UK overall uh, investment. So that's a pretty substantial uh, amount of money. Now, a lot of the net costs of that comes up front because there are savings uh, in the future. We have to spend a lot on uh, windmills up front, but then uh, the wind doesn't cost anything, unlike uh, coal power stations where you have to keep paying for the coal um, into the future. And a fair bit of uh, green technologies like that, um, we're going to have to replace probably um, all of the gas boilers in the 30 million or so homes uh, in the UK, or at least get them running on hydrogen. That's going to be pretty uh, expensive, but once again, again, once uh, that's up and running, it should be cheaper to operate. So the key uh, issues around all of that are where does the money come up front, who pays for it uh, in terms of higher bills and so on. Um, and there's a separate set of issues actually about who pays for other aspects of the transition uh, if some kinds of jobs disappear. Uh, mechanics who, who repair uh, electric uh, petrol driven vehicles are not necessarily going to be needed for repairing electric vehicles. People working in uh, refining and so on may not have jobs. So we need to get that sort of transition right. But in terms of the 50 billion or so investment uh, up front, the Climate Change Committee's view is that the large majority of that will need will come from uh, the private sector in one way or another, but that will result in increased prices um, in uh, in the short run. When we're talking about things like uh, replacing gas boilers uh, and so on, uh, there's clearly a set of choices um, about that, uh, the extent to which we subsidise or don't subsidise households do it. It would strike me as being uh, likely that there'll need to be significant subsidy uh, for that to make that an acceptable, uh, an acceptable way of moving, uh, of, of moving forward. But the key thing here, are two key things. First, 
is that these new changes and policies need to be done in an efficient way because the prices, uh, the costs will spiral quickly if we get this wrong, um, either through government getting things wrong, and that does happen, um, or through um, inefficiencies uh, in, uh, in the market. Um, and secondly, that we uh, spread these costs in a way which is, is and is seen to be uh, relatively uh, fair and just across the population. I've probably already spent more than my three minutes and said very little and happy to take uh, a much further discussion along some of these lines. Thank you very much, Paul. Dieter, I will come back to you now. I think we've managed to sort out the tech problems. Um, so over to you for a brief summary of the arguments in your book. I think you will need to unmute yourself. So let me uh, wind back from Paul's very helpful uh, ex explanation of where the Climate Change Committee got to. So in this discussion about climate change, I think that the uh, British public, etc., think that they are unilaterally uh, no longer going to cause climate change when they get to net zero. Uh, and it seems to me that that is uh, really rather questionable. So the Climate Change Committee last year, 2019, I think, said by reducing emissions produced in the UK to zero, we also end our contributions to rising uh, global emissions. No, we're never going to get to zero and we're never going to end our emissions, uh, our, our, our contributions to global warming on the basis of territorial unilateral carbon production, unless everybody else in the world has got to the same point. And China isn't proposing to get there. There's not much evidence that India is going to get there. Africa probably won't. So if you actually really do want to unilaterally stop causing a global problem, then you have to address carbon consumption and not just carbon production. It's not enough to uh, not open a coal mine in Britain, but import the coke from somewhere else around the world. That doesn't actually make climate change any better. It makes it worse. I'm not in favour of opening the coal mine, but it's the point to make. OK, so that's the first point. The second point is climate change is the consequence of both emissions and sequestration. So the only number that matters is not territorial production in the UK, but the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. That's what causes climate change. And long before humans came along, the natural environment has been absorbing carbon and emitting carbon. And indeed, we're all made of carbon. So it's that balance at stake. So we don't want to focus just on emissions. We want to focus on sequestration as well. Next point is, if we are focusing on emissions in the UK, then transports up there at the top, then heating, then uh, comes uh, power, but relative to size, agriculture is 0.6% of the economy, produces when you add in soils, which have four times the carbon of the atmosphere, uh, as in the atmosphere, about 15% of emissions. So agriculture is where you start and agriculture is where emissions and sequestration come to buy. So if we look at the parts per million in the atmosphere, we've been working at this climate change problem for 30 years and we've made no progress in addressing the trend line. It's two parts per million every single year added to the carbon concentration in the atmosphere, including last year. So even the coronavirus lockdowns did not change the increase of carbon concentration in the atmosphere. 
And uh, therefore, if we really want to no longer contribute to climate change, A, it's going to cost more than 1%. But of course, the 1% that Paul refers to, he rightly says, this assumes that government gets it right. The history of energy policy is littered with examples of government failure, substantive government failure, and there's no reason to believe that this government is going to get it any better right than previous ones. Just to have a look at the previous Green Deal, a fiasco, the smart meters, there's a whole host of these things. So the end result of this is, if we really want to no longer cause climate change, it's a much more demanding task than the one that we've set ourselves. And secondly, it's going to cost more than the baseline estimate, unless you think we've invented perfect government, because they've listened to the Institute for Government and decided that they know now how to do these things because you've instructed them correctly. Thank you. Well, I hope they are listening to us, but I'm not so much of an optimist to think that everything will go swimmingly from here on. Um, Rain, let me come to you then for your uh, opening remarks. How does this question of paying for transition look to your members and, and what, what are your members looking for government to do in order for them to play their part in this? Thanks, Gemma, and, and good afternoon, um, uh, everyone. And, and I think uh, maybe to just sort of build on, on what the other panellists have, have said, I think no one is sort of underestimating the, the scale of, of the challenge. And I I certainly agree with what Dieter is saying. We need to think not only about uh, the carbon emissions within our, our production, but but also within uh, our consumption. Um, though I'm I'm certainly hopeful. I think particularly this year with the UK hosting COP26 and the UN climate negotiations here uh, in November, that the more we can persuade more countries to adopt those net zero targets, and if we're all uh, moving in in the same direction. Uh, that that reduces some of the burden on on just looking at um, the production side of of the equation in in some countries and and uh, addresses that holistic issue. I absolutely agree. This is something that all countries uh, have to tackle uh, together. And I think in a way, what's been really heartening over uh, the COVID pandemic is is how much the issues uh, and uh, the desire I think from the business community. Uh, to to really help the UK move along that low carbon transition uh, has uh, you know pardon the, the pun there's been so much energy uh, behind it and and I think real commitment and and what I've found from the business community actually is they are the ones who have been uh, you know applying pressure uh, to the government and saying look you know it's great that we saw that that ten point green industrial revolution plan uh, but there's more detail we need to see underneath it and we do finally now have the energy white paper uh, but you know certainly earlier in the autumn we were getting so so many of our members coming to us and say we really need to the government to sort of set the the direct direction um, on 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 our future sort of energy use and and making the decisions uh, that we need to see so that businesses can can get behind and, and invest in uh, some of the technologies we need to, to move to a uh, low carbon uh, economy. Uh, and I think as as Paul sort of said in his work for the UK Committee on Climate Change, you know, it, it is we need a huge amount of investment, that 15 billion pounds per year. Now, a lot of that needs to come from the private sector. And so what are businesses sort of asking for for, for that to happen? I think I, I, I point to sort of three things I think we need to see. One is about 
aligning the incentives in the system around taxation. Um, it's secondly looking at our approach to regulation uh, across sectors. So you can think of a sort of carrot uh, and then the stick. Um, but finally, I think what we are seeing is a lot of the drive to that low carbon transition is also coming from consumers and, and clients uh, themselves. So I think first of all on that aligning uh, ta the tax system uh, to the move to a low carbon uh, economy. I think in a way what's happened, we've had this sort of patchwork of of rate tax and, and regulation, which have built up over time uh, before we really were focused on having a net zero target and, and before we started this acceleration uh, in the move to reduce our, our carbon emissions. Um, and so I think we need to look at that holistically. And and one good example of that is, is what Paul Paul was talking about and how we decarbonize heat in our uh, in our buildings. Uh, we know that you know around 40% of uh, buildings you know make up a large proportion uh, of our carbon footprint, and a lot of that is the commercial uh, property stock. And yet, at the moment, we have a business rate system. We have we know that in the UK we have a relatively high taxation on property for business uh, and at the moment if you make your business your commercial property more energy efficient uh, then that increases the rateable value of your property and so that increases your business rates bill uh, and so there are things the government could do uh, to provide some relief from business rates for uh, a period of time if if uh, businesses make their commercial property building much more energy efficient and I think it's those sorts of aligning of the tax system uh, to the incentives we want to see and getting both individuals and households investing in decarbonizing heat in our homes but also thinking about commercial property so I think that's one way of really having the right sort of uh, carrots and, and incentives and then I think secondly it's about regulation and, and really having being clear uh, what sort of technologies uh, we think for the moment uh, will work to deliver a low carbon uh, uh, future and, and where we need to see differences. So again, an example of that, we could be building homes right now uh, that are um, carbon neutral in terms of their, their heat. Uh, the government have committed to doing that by uh, under the, the zero carbon homes initiative, but we could move further and, and faster on some of those and those examples around, you know, we, we need to ban gas boilers by a set date so businesses again can can help that drive the incentive to invest in some of the newer technologies uh, from heat pumps to district heat systems. And I think it will be quite local. You'll see different solutions on how we heat our homes in, in different areas. But I think you need to have clear uh, regulations uh, to help drive that, that investment. And finally, it, it's absolutely about uh, galvanizing, I think, on what consumers and um, and businesses clients want to see in terms of the move to a low carbon uh, economy. There's a whole piece there about transparency and reporting around climate risk, but also the wider uh, carbon footprint that, that businesses have. Um, but I think there's a huge piece around sharing best practice. And one of the things that we've been working uh, on with uh, uh, Deloitte and, uh, and the Met Office and, and many others is is establishing a goal 13 platform where businesses can share some of the best practice, not just how they set a carbon emissions reduction for their own business, uh, but how they achieve that. What is the, the best way to, to reduce emissions within different sectors? 
Um, and, and what you find there is that it is, it's the drive from consumers and clients that really help to set those targets. Uh, and then it's important to have that credible plan to deliver those uh, emissions. So I think really we need a, just a much more holistic approach that uh, every government department is thinking about that net zero target. They're thinking about every policy they set and how it is uh, aligned with that target uh, and bringing some of those decisions that need to happen across government and across government uh, depart departments. So we have a much more holistic approach, both by the public sector, uh, but also the private sector in, in delivering that net zero target. Great, thank you very much, Rain. My first question then is there were reports last week that the Prime Minister is considering an economy-wide carbon pricing mechanism. Um, do you think that's a move in the right direction? What would need to be done to make that work? And what would it mean about carbon pricing at the border? And um, Dieter, perhaps I can come to you first, given that you talked about this question of the UK and within the world and carbon pricing that way. Okay, so the, the first best economic efficient uh, policy instrument, a necessary instrument, not sufficient because we want to do the infrastructure and other stuff, is that there is a uniform carbon price on everything. Right? On agriculture, transport, energy, heating, and applied at the border and domestically. Then the economy finds the uh, least cost path, and we really will need to find a least cost path because I don't believe consumers will otherwise swallow what's there. So. Um, you might think, well, you know, we have a great opportunity. Brexit comes along and uh, whatever one's view of Brexit, we get out of the common agricultural policy, we get out of the common fisheries policy and we can choose our own carbon pricing uh, procedure. The Treasury put forward three options, shadowing the EU ETS, uh, a UK ETS or a carbon price. Um, the EU ETS is now actually a carbon tax. The EU is manipulating the number of permits to reduce the price that they would like to come out at the end, which is worse than the carbon price tax that they proposed back in 1991. But hey, there's a system there and it operates. Of the options, the obvious thing to do was to take this opportunity to introduce carbon tax across the board. The, the, uh, I think the Treasury wanted to pursue that. Uh, Bez in particular wanted a UK ETS, which is the worst option because now we'll have negotiations sector by sector, industry by industry. And that leaves the residual problem. Well, that will apply to the large industrial sector and the power sector. But what about agriculture, transport and heating? So then the prime minister or the government floats a kite. It's a classic new institute of government. We're interested in these things kind of technique for policy. You float something up, let's have a tax on beef, dairy and domestic heating. OK, and what you do is you do two things. First of all, you signal to the climate change interest that you're on their side. So you, you get the symbol out there that you're trying to find ways forward. And then secondly, you find out what the lobbyists do and see how big the reaction is. And that's what's been going on in the newspapers this week. So. We don't say we want to have a general agricultural tax. We don't want to say we want to get rid of subsidising red diesel. We pick on beef and dairy. Okay, and this is what I call bespoke carbon taxation. Okay, and any economist will say that you're interested in the substitution of the income effect and you're interested in the second best effects. And it's perfectly possible we end up with a patchwork quilt of individual carbon taxes 
on the politically acceptable places to hit, but don't have a coherent policy. And so if you look at beef and dairy, um, the right answer is that the big, big story in emissions in agriculture are soils, which is, you know, like power stations. We've just been stripping out the carbon. Uh, and by the way, the carbon and the biodiversity are closely correlated in the soil, and most biodiversity is below your feet. Okay, then it's about fertilizers, pesticides, and red diesel. Instead, we start with beef and dairy, uh, and not a border adjustment either. So, yes to a general carbon tax, yes to moving in that direction. Essential, as the NFU also point out, that it applies at the border too. But bespoke political tax step by step, probably not. Paul, can I come to you next on that? What's your take on this? Are you as sceptical as Dieter about the politics of this? Well, I completely agree with every word that Dieter said, and he just said it far more articulately than I um, could have done. Yes, of course, uh, uh, a carbon price across the economy is the right way uh, to go as, an, as, as a crucial, but by no means only part of the um, policy. Uh, but do I have any real faith in the government delivering it? No, not really. Um, uh, you know, just take the most obvious uh, impact of it, which would be to, you know, you would, you would want to start at least by not subsidising the consumption of gas, which we do by uh, effectively um, having a, a low rate of VAT at 5% on it. And then you'd want to um, add another tax on top. Now, that's the right thing to do. And if I was a, um, you know, if I was a, 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 a nice dictator, uh, then that's the thing that I would do. But I wouldn't get elected, um, as would very few of us think tankers, um, if I went to the uh, if I went to the population with that kind of policy, which is exactly why you end up with this sort of piecemeal uh, type of approach that Dieter um, was referring to. So I think we are in the world of second best policies here. I think it's one of the reasons why um, you know we've ended up with a UK emission trading scheme because uh, and across the board um, uh, UK tax was effectively uh, politically ruled out and I think the kind of kite flying that we've seen uh, really is all about um, indicating willing and then having to go to the green lobby and say look we can't possibly do it because everyone's against it um, so so yes we should have it but no we won't have it. And Rain coming to you I mean, your, what's your view from business to what extent our government essentially receiving a whole load of disparate lobbying efforts from every industry trying to avoid the cost being imposed on them and other ways around this of coming up with a more coherent approach the government that might be sustainable for the government? Uh, well I I think I certainly hope with it at the CBI we're, we're trying to play a, a role in, in, in having that sort of whole economy uh, approach and I, I think look what a and I think there's a danger that the three of us are all going to like violently agree with each other. Um, uh, so, so I think because I think what we're saying from from sort of business, I think everyone kind of accepts you need to have some sort of principle of a polluter pays and and having a way of uh, addressing some of the the externalities and and a carbon price is you know plays a really important role in that. And I think what business wants to see is that holistic approach and and their kind of nightmare scenario is you get this sort of piecemeal taxes here and taxes there where it's not in a coherent whole it's unpredictable and then it's really hard for businesses to understand what the strategy is and and where they need to in, invest uh behind some of those those newer technologies so um 
you know, I guess it's where we started from. We need to have a holistic tax strategy. I think, you know, there is an opportunity with the UK leaving the EU to, to look at our, our carbon pricing and what system we have. I think we definitely need to be mindful that we need some link with the sort of EU um, uh, emissions trading scheme because, you know, many businesses are, are sort of operating across borders. So we need to have some sort of link and scale uh, often for these those sort of trading systems to, to work well. So, you know, businesses have almost, you know, that's been the ask, what is the link between the UK system and, and the EU system? And they just want uh, clarity uh, absolutely uh, on on that. And I, um, and I think, you know, the other danger we've talked about that piecemeal approach is that you have the EU pursuing one, one uh, form of carbon border adjustment tax but then you know we need ideally right these things economists love it when these things happen globally in a coordinated fashion uh so that you have adjustment and and not distortions between one trading area and another um but but i guess the, the reality is that doesn't always um happen but there's definitely a role uh for that and thinking about how it it works and alleviates some of these challenge about if you just have a if you're just looking at your um uh, your emissions that you are producing within your country, then you're missing uh, some of the emissions you are, uh, you know, indirectly importing uh, through through consumption. Um, so yeah, I think business just don't want to see that piecemeal approach. They definitely want a, a holistic uh, approach, and and the more you know clarity and long term certainty they they can um, get, the better. And I guess you know stepping back, if we think about what's, I'll try and think of some things that have worked well, so we're not too pessimistic. I think you know if you look at how the offshore wind industry has developed, and, and when you look at how we've managed to decarbonize, um, uh, you know energy, and and at times half of our energy sources are coming from renewable energy, uh, and we can point to some good examples of of how we did get some of the policies right to help develop some of those industries. And I think we need to learn from. Uh, where that worked well and accelerate uh, some of that going forward. That's definitely what we need to see. Great, thank you. Um, to pick up on something that you touched on, Rain, which was about investment in private companies and investing in those that are contributing to the um, pursuit of net zero. What is it that investors should be looking for to know that a company is uh, playing its role in getting to net zero and what sort of information do investors need to have access to to judge those sorts of green credentials? Perhaps I'll come to you first, Rain, and then the others. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, to, you know, what ideally what, what we need is, is sort of transparency on, on uh, individual, you know, an individual business's overall emissions. So there are now, there are now duties around reporting uh, your carbon emissions uh, at a company level. And I think that's what you know we need to to see and i think having you know if you think about the the net zero transition uh, we can think about at the macro level but at a, a micro level for each individual business we need them to be uh you know doing that race to net zero a race to, to the top uh where individual businesses are, are making commitments to reduce their their carbon emissions uh, you need some way of verifying that and uh you know cdp the climate uh, disclosures projects and, and others have ways in which uh, businesses or science-based targets can make clear uh, and defined and verifiable uh, commitments around their carbon emissions and, and how they will uh, reduce those over time. So knowing what a business's carbon emissions is a key part of it. Of course, you know, in terms of the investor community, uh, there is now a huge, hugely developed field in terms of 
uh, ESG, so not just reporting on uh, emissions and on your wider impact on the environment, but also thinking about uh, your social and, and governance uh, obligations. And I think one of the challenges is we're still developing, you know, economists call it the nomenclature, you know, the, the challenge is having a single set of standards uh, that investors can can turn to. Uh, and that's being developed, but I, st I still think there's a lot further to go. Uh, and you can look to what's happened in the financial services and, and the work of the task force on financial related uh, disclosures that the Bank of England and others have been involved in where financial firms have to disclose their their risks of their investment uh, portfolio to climate risk. Um, and that is will soon be something that wider businesses outside of the financial services are likely to need to do. Um, but we still need to have more efforts and there's definitely work within the accounting community and, and more broadly about how we have clearly defined ways of determining what an individual company's carbon footprint is, uh, as well as some of those other, the wider impact on, on our environment and, and biodiversity as uh, Dieter was referring to as well. And Dieter, let me come to you then as well. What, what's your sort of view on how we should judge whether a company or the things we are buying, what, what really is the green impact of those and what should we be looking for? Okay, so there, there, there were two bits to your initial question. One was about the private sector investing and the second one is about how to make these judgments. On the first one, I, I think there's one important point to make. So not only does the government believe or um, uh, the CCC says what the number will be if there are no government failures, we just had a discussion about a massive government failure, which is its failure to do carbon taxation. So what it tells you is we are looking at higher numbers. Now, the second thing that's true is that, and it's not just this prime minister, though, he's a specialist at it. We now live in the world of cakeism. So the one thing that's not allowed to happen is that um, prices are not allowed to go up. And that, it seems to me, is going to be part of the politics going forward. Just it has been for the last 10 years, Ed Miliband campaigned on electricity prices. You shouldn't underestimate how important this is. Now, the trouble is that if current customers aren't going to pay and if current taxpayers are going to be paying for social care, NHS and all the other things that Paul keeps uh, so uh, brilliantly pointing out in the press and elsewhere in the IFS point out, there isn't going to be any extra taxpayers money either. Okay, so what's the answer? Who's actually going to pay if you're a private investor? Where am I going to get my money back? Who's going to pay the return on? Answer is future customers and future taxpayers. So the next generation are going to get the costs of cleaning up the mess that we've dumped on them, apart from all the other things we've done to the next generation, which again, Paul has been very good at um, highlighting. And I just don't believe it. I just don't believe that actually future customers and future taxpayers are going to pay. And we've seen in the past um, uh, defaults, reneging on policy, etc. in other European countries when the bills come home, Spain's most notorious. I think that investors really want to know how, if you can't force current customers and current taxpayers to pay, you're going to force future ones to do so going forward. So I think that's important. The second thing to say is on, and how do you know whether the companies and the deliverers of the investments in low carbon are actually delivering what they say? Now, recall I said sequestration is at least half the problem, okay? And many of the carbon offset issues that are out there at the moment, this is at least as important as emissions. It's hardly ever mentioned in climate change discussions. So the sequestration side um, is much more complicated because 
You can plant eucalyptus trees all over Britain. They're the fastest growing trees and they'll sequestrate carbon the fastest. And they're quite easy to verify. You'll destroy the biodiversity, much like the conifer forests have done in Britain by focusing just on timber. So you have to have natural capital baselines and you have to repeat those through time. And those are now becoming available. So there are real digital technologies to do that. And on the carbon emissions impacts, it's not obvious that there is a simple nirvana at the end, which gives you a unit measure, which just tells you the answer tick or cross, which the ESG community can then charge their fees for. You know, the emissions effects of any business are not the, just the exact emissions from their exact plant. It's the dropping the pebble in the water and looking at the ripples right through the frame. Do they lead to import substitutions? Do they cause things to be different in Kenya? What are the end effects of that? And I think we need to be sophisticated and realize that there is no unique single measure, but that we do have lots of technologies and we must especially do this on the consumption side and on the land use side and the marine side and on the broader carbon offset market world. Otherwise, greenwashing will be uh, even more widespread than sadly it already is. And Paul, for you, let me pick up on something that Dieter just said in the start of his answer there. We obviously know that the government is in principle signed up to getting to net zero and there seems to be quite widespread public support for the idea of uh, cutting our emissions to net zero. Um, but from your experience, to what extent do you think the government and the public are really bought into the realities of what that means in terms of the costs and the changes that are going to be coming? And, and what does that mean for the kind of policies that we do need to be adopting? Um, I don't think the public's got a clue, um, if I'm absolutely uh, honest. Um, uh, in, in, the, in the sense that um, the, uh, they've not noticed what's happened over the last decade. We've made big progress over the last decade, but the same electricity is coming out of your plug and nothing else has changed. Whereas over the next 30 years, things will change. The, if we're to meet net zero, we'll clearly all need to change to electric cars. Well, that ought to be um, OK. But, uh, you know, at some point we may be um, forcing people to get out of their old cars. Um, we're going to be telling them to change their heating. Um, we may well be seeing a significant change in industrial policy. We may see increases in prices if we have border carbon um, adjustments. We may need people to be changing their diets and their behaviours. I mean, there's a big change to get from here to net zero, as well as the 50 billion a year or whatever the number is of additional um, investment. And I think in a way, those who are saying we should get to net zero by 2025 or 2030 or some such equally utterly implausible um, suggestion are sort of playing on that ignorance to some extent. Because I mean, though, you know, to get there in 2025 is literally not possible. And yet it still seems to be part of the debate. And that I think gives people the, um, the incorrect presumption that getting there by 2050 will be a doddle. Now, I think we can get there by 2050, but it ain't going to be a doddle. Um, in terms of the in terms of the government, um, I mean, you know, it depends what you mean by the government uh, as ever. Um, uh, but there, there are clearly are you know, people within government who understand uh, what's uh, required, and there clearly are uh, a set of policies in train which will move us in the right direction. But as the Climate Change Committee says every time we report on this, there's nothing like the sets of policies actually set out and the sets of strategies actually set out 
um, clearly that will uh, get us there, partly for some of the political reasons that we've that, that we've discussed. Now, um, I'm still pretty optimistic, uh, despite all of that, uh, that we'll make um, certainly on domestic uh, emissions, you know, really very good progress and might even uh, get 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 to net zero or, or close to net uh, zero over that time. Uh, but there are some, you know, there are the big, um, you know, big issues around consumption emissions, which Dieter is absolutely right um, to raise. Um, and, you know, I think I think partly sort of coming back to your, your questions about ESG as well. I think part, you know, the effectiveness of ESG and, you know, all, everything that um, you know, Dieter and Rain said is absolutely right around sort of measurement and I think in particular uh, these issues around uh, counterfactuals. But actually, the big the big picture there, stepping back, is it will only work if people really want it to work. Um, you know, it's no good telling people that uh, you know such and you know such and such company is um, is not as green as such and such another company if they're not willing to change their behaviour in response. And actually, you know, these changes are slow and uncertain and don't necessarily have that much um, have that much impact unless uh, unless it goes with a really clear public view about uh, which will which will actually hold people's feet to the fire on this. And we've seen this across all sorts of issues. It can change over time, but it really is that public. You know, and part of that is the public reporting, but it's only one uh, one part of a you know multi-dimensional uh, set of uh, policies and changes in attitude and behaviour you need to make that work. Just uh, that change in reporting by itself. Uh, will make, I imagine, quite a small amount of difference. Thank you. I'll turn now to questions we've had coming in uh, through the Q&A, and I'll, I'll pull together a few of these on similar themes. Um, so we've had a question from uh, Devon Borrelia in London asking to what extent the COVID pandemic will have affected the ability of both government and people to pay for the transition to net zero. Um, and there's other questions have come in about the, the sort of costs of doing things like converting your gas boiler to an air heat pump. And I wonder what you think about the the fact of strained public finances coming out of uh, the pandemic and for the ageing population reasons that Dieter already mentioned. Uh, but what that means for the mix of policies that we're likely to see between, uh, I suppose, the sorts of things that Rain was alluding to, the sort of tax reliefs and subsidies to encourage the private sector and individuals and businesses to invest in these things versus the sort of the more stick approach. Do we tax bad things? Do we regulate and force people to do these things because the public sector has less money to incentivise rather than force? Um, Rain, perhaps I can come to you first. Uh, darn, I thought you were going to go for someone else first. Uh, <laughs> those are really hard questions. I'm going to do uh, my best to, to, to sort of tackle them. Um, and I think, so, so I'm actually going to start from a sort of wider point about, uh, which is one of my, uh, you know, slight bugbears where I think there is a, a problem in the system is, is I think if we focus solely on the uh, the stat the not static cost, but just thinking about the overall impact on GDP and on emissions. One of the things we're really missing uh, is the things that matter for people's individual as individuals, which is quality of life and well-being. Right. So I think 
um, it, you know, and this was one of the challenges for the UK Committee on Climate Change when they were looking at some of the analysis around, you know, making the recommendation to adopt the net zero target. They didn't look necessarily at some of the co-benefits in terms of health outcomes, but in terms of winning the public argument, it's, it plays a huge role. And I think that's one of the challenges. If we look just too narrowly at the cost, we forget the sort of benefits on the other side. So if we're able to reduce air pollution, we know from work that we've done for the Clean Air Fund, if we can uh, have better uh, air quality, uh, which is one of the co-benefits of, of obviously reducing emissions on our roads from uh, combustion engines. So that's not the only part, right? Cars in their tires leave uh, lead to air pollution. Uh, but if you can re reduce air pollution, then obviously that improves our health outcomes. It can save, you know, working days through people getting sick. It reduces the rates of asthma. Um, and, and uh, you know, so I think we do need to think about the co-benefits. And I think more broadly, the sooner we invest, the lower the costs overall. So I think that's something we absolutely uh, have to bear in mind. Um, look, we know I'll, I'll leave uh, I'll leave it to Paul, the expert around the challenges on our, on our public finances. And, and obviously the pandemic, you know, has placed a huge burden on our, our public uh, finances. So I guess it comes back to the, the other issues. It isn't, uh, yes, public investment is part of it, but the, we also need to uh, unlock some of the, the private uh, investment. And that is, you know, it is a carrot uh, approach. It's also a stick approach. I don't think you can have, um, you can't just have one or the other. I think we need a, a sort of combination uh, of all of those things to for this to, to really uh, work well. Paul. Uh yeah, uh, well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that the pandemic has left us poorer and um, if we're poorer, things are harder. And that's a sort of, you know, that that, that sort of really very basic statement seems to be lost uh, <laughs> in the um, in the general discussion um, about this. Uh, but I'm afraid it's true. Things don't get easier when you get poorer and get several hundred billion pounds more in debt than you were last year. Things get harder. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 mean, I, I mean, I think that's something that, you know, we should say virtually every day when uh, people come up um, talking about whatever it is uh, when it comes to building back better as in terms of this being an opportunity. I mean, that said, yes, there is an opportunity here. There's an opportunity for two reasons. So there's an opportunity first for the sort of economic reason that for a period we will be underutilizing um, resources. So in an economic sense, uh, government intervention might be um, less expensive than it was um, previously because we're not uh, going to be crowding out the private sector uh, to the same extent. And secondly, for the political sense that um, you know, crises can um, uh, offer you opportunities to do things differently. Um, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that, and it's going back to what Dita was saying, earlier, uh, if you pay for a lot of stuff now, particularly when you're in a lot of debt now, then, you know, it, it is a future generation who will end up um, having to uh, having to pay. So um, the I think the, uh, the, the, the in, in the end, I think it, in the end, it hasn't changed. I don't think it changes the pandemic. I don't think we isn't really in the well, in the long run. It makes the economics more difficult in the short run it might make the economics a little bit easier. I don't think we should think of it as changing anything uh, very much in terms of um, policy that's required or how we um, or how we pay for it. 
and I think uh, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that it it is. And I, I mean, I I remember these conversations a decade or um, eleven or twelve years ago in the middle of the fi financial crisis, where there was there were very similar um, discussions, um, you know, saying you know, this is a crisis. Um, there's lots of spare capacity. This is an opportunity for vast amounts of government money to go into green infrastructure and so on. Uh, and nothing of the sort um, happened. We went down a route which I think is, ex I mean, who knows the counterfactual, but I suspect very similar to the route we would have gone down without the crisis. But we've had, you know, the economy is a lot smaller than it would have been without the crisis. And so we haven't had the resources actually to invest as we might otherwise have done so. Thanks, Paul. Um, we've also had a question from Chris Rumsey of the ABI who asks, what role do you see for the insurance and long-term savings sector in the transition to net zero? We obviously have a lot of private savings sitting in things, including pensions. Um, what's the role of that and what changes uh, to regulations might be needed or possible now that we've left the EU, including the Solvency II reforms to unlock greater levels of investment in green assets? Uh, Dieter, can I come to you first on that one? Okay, so, so the investment issue segues really neatly from what Paul has said. Just to reinforce, we are in biodiversity sense and climate change sense, living beyond our environmental means. That's what Das Gupta says, that's what not paying as polluters for climate change says. So we have a standard of living which is inconsistent with the protection of the two key assets for the future of humanity, biodiversity environment. Um, and we're also, just an aside, living beyond our intergenerational obligations to our successors uh, for all the reasons that my generations cheated on the young before we got anywhere near COVID and we're poorer because of COVID. Okay, that's reality. Now, there are lots of Keynesians running around uh, in the usual format saying just spend, 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 the multiplier effect will create an increase in income that will generate investment. So investment flows from that and then investment will carry and it'll all work out perfectly. The idea that what we want to do is increase mankind's consumption even more than we're currently doing as a solution to living beyond our means, I struggle with, but I struggle with the framework of that as a whole. Now the crux of all this is, well, we've got spare resources. Now in Keynesian terms, it's just aggregate demand that's short. But of course, what really matters is whether it's consumption demand or investment demand, and whether we use the opportunity now to increase investment rather than increase consumption. After the Second World War, where we had 245% debt to GDP ratio, and we were in a very bad way, the state confiscated as much as it possibly could and diverted the resources into investment. And that's how we rebuilt the post uh, Second World War uh, frame. So now we say we're going to have a big investment program. Great. Although that's not exactly what the white paper, etc. says. It's all about jobs now, about business now, about consumption now, as opposed to the investment component. So who's doing the investing? Because although it's true in the pandemic that people were forced to save, we do not have a high savings ratio in Britain. We rely on the comfort of strangers, foreigners, to invest in Britain. We run deficits domestically and externally, and we've just made our external deficit much worse through Brexit with the EU. And so we need capital inflows from abroad to invest because we don't save for investment. Right? And so if you look forward 
into this frame going forward. So, oh, it's all this pension fund money. If we just corral it together, Osborne tried that too. Really? Who's buying up most of the infrastructure in Britain? It's foreign country, co companies and foreign governments as part of the natural counterpart to the current account deficit on the balance of payments. Okay, And by the way, we're saying we don't really want any foreigners now to do this stuff. So I think there is a big gap as to who these people are who are going to provide the savings to make equal to the investment to fulfill what I think will be much more than 50 billion per annum, which is the number that the uh, CCC came up with. Of course, we want to organise pension funds, etc. But let's just make sure that we tell them, the pensioners, whether we're doing this because it's just good investment practice or whether we're doing it because we want them to subsidise for lower returns than they otherwise would have had. And that's, again, something the public is not being told. They're told that all this investment is really good stuff. And just as an aside, if you look back over the last year, I'm sure that tech stocks have done incredibly well. And there is definitely, in my view, a bubble in renewables. But the reason why the indexes look poor against the ESG funds is because the big parts of the um, indexes, things like oil and gas companies, faced a halving of the oil price in January before the pandemic. And so if you halve the value of key commodities, then you will get a differential performance, which people are now currently presenting as if it demonstrates that environmental investment is better than otherwise. And that leads to the very final point. If we believe all this stuff that we're told about renewables are cheaper than any other form of a generation, um, that all these costs are falling across the board, let's just remember, we don't need to encourage anyone to invest, they will, and we don't need any subsidies either. We can abolish the subsidies, and I think that's rubbish. I think that the renewables need all the support they can get, and that's because the true system costs of renewables is not cost competitive yet. And um, those system costs, as people discovered with their recent electricity bills, are going up, not going down. So the investment story has behind it a bigger story about exactly what we're going to do in the state we're now in, which Paul described, which is we're poorer, a lot poorer than we thought we were. And that's before we've realised we're already living beyond our environmental and our generational means. Thank you, Dieter. Brain, can I come to you and perhaps, if, if possible, could you pick up on the point about changing regulations as well? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm just conscious of time. So, so let me just sort of counter through uh, quite quickly some of those points. So, so first of all, like what is the sort of role of, of the insurance industry and, and, and also sort of pensions, uh, which is related but, but different? I think, first of all, if you think about what individuals can do, there is a big campaign, Make My Money Matter, where people can be more mindful about where they are investing uh, their pensions. I think the industry responds to incentives. So I think the more people can think, where are they investing their pension? Uh, that is a huge role uh, that can be that can be played. Now, the whole role around finance is absolutely needs to be focused on outcomes in, in the real economy. So really thinking about how that is focused on decarbonizing heat in our homes, developing new technologies around carbon capture usage and storage, or thinking about how we decarbonize transport. So, uh, and, and I think also on the insurance industry, in some sense, they are facing some of the risks from climate change first, whether that's here in the UK and the risks uh, from flooding and from um, 
in more extreme climate events or whether that's thinking more globally about uh, people who are uh, more exposed to some of those uh, risks. So I think, you know, in a way that the insurance uh, uh, industry is absolutely at the forefront of, of uh, the impact from, from climate change. Um, and finally, just just to sort of add, I, I really support what I think Dieter has said around natural capital uh, accounting. I think we need that uh, absolutely for us as as a government, and I think we also need to think about what the equivalent uh, for that is for for individual uh, companies. And and finally, yes, what we need to see in this recovery from. Uh, the pandemic, but more broadly, is anything we can do, not just to uh, increase public investment in in low carbon technologies, but absolutely it's about business investment uh, more generally. It's always been the sort of holy grail uh, in uh, recoveries in, in the UK economy. We, we do need to think about ways in which we stimulate business investment. It's much easier to say than to do. It's about thinking about our tax uh, system. It's about helping smaller companies adopt digital technologies, but absolutely, ideally, we want to have that focus on, on business investment to make this a more sustainable recovery. Thank you, Rain. And Paul, let me come to you with one very quick final question, because as Rain noted, we are almost up on our time. Um, we haven't spoken a lot about distributional implications. You touched on it in your opening remarks, and you also touched about on the point that there are upfront costs to this decarbonisation, but some long term benefits, for example, the lower costs of um, heating better insulated houses and that sort of thing. Um, what are your sort of thoughts on the extent to which those longer term benefits are likely to accrue to the same or different types of people who would be the ones facing the upfront costs of this? Well, in partly it depends who does face the upfront costs. Of course, if we do this through borrowing, whether public or private, as Dieter was um, saying earlier, then the plan at least would be for future generations to face a lot of those um, costs. Although, you know, I think it's pretty clear that, um, as I say, with a lot of the decarbonation, at least a significant chunk of the decarbonisation of electricity, it is current consumers who have faced um, those upfront, uh, those upfront costs. Um, second point is, if you were just to um, uh, do this entirely through uh, through the market with um, with, with tax uh, appropriate tax um, instruments, you'd probably find that was pretty. Uh, regressive because you will be having quite high taxes on consumption of fuel and food um, and things like that, which we know are uh, a higher fraction of the budgets of people on lower incomes. So you would need to have some significant redistribution um, alongside that, which is perfectly possible. Um, we, you know, there's plenty of ways of um, changing other bits of the tax and welfare and public services system to, um, uh, to uh, compensate people. Um, for that, um, uh, I think the I mean I think the point about um, you know, generational costs is um, you know, is quite a tricky one in a sense that you know it is arguably it is future generations who will benefit from this relative to a world in which we um, do nothing. So it's not entirely unreasonable to expect them to pay for some of this, and it doesn't seem to be reasonable to expect a single generation who happen to be around at the moment to pay for it all. Either so, um, spreading it over time, um, you know, you can make a case for that. I think the question is whether that is um, either sort of feasible in the sense of a credible policy, uh, in the sense that we can be sure that people will pay that back, um, or indeed um, feasible in the sense of a policy given the scale of other borrowing and debts that we've got that can be achieved under current circumstances. And as I say, I think that's one of the reasons why. 
the current um, you know the current state of the economy as a reason not for celebration in terms of um, what you can do uh, with respect to climate change, but for additional uh, for additional worry. Thank you very much. And thank you all so much for your contributions to today's events. And thank you to our sponsors uh, for today's event. And thank you to all of you for tuning in to watch this. Uh, please do join us for the next of today's events, which will start at 4.30 on looking at how can countries work together to make a success of COP26.